Our topic tonight is the A in creation, health. We've been on a journey together back to that garden. We've looked at choice and rest, and we've looked at the environment. And tonight we're going to look at activity. Some time ago, I came across a book that, who, that the title of the book really intrigued me. It was entitled, What the River Knows. Often as I've hiked through forests and woods, I've asked myself the question, I wonder what this stream knows. If this stream could talk to me, what would the stream say? Would it talk to me about a father that brought his boy there to fish? Would it talk to me about an old man sitting on a rock watching the stream go by musing about his life? Would it talk to me about two young lovers walking hand in hand along the side of the stream? If this stream could talk and tell me its stories through the decades and the centuries, what would it say? Would it talk about leaves falling in the autumn? Would it talk about snow falling in the winter? Would it talk about trout jumping? Would it talk about bears drinking? Would it talk about deer waiting? Would it talk about centuries that were older, about Indians fishing? And would it talk about wars that were achieved? What would the stream say? So when I saw the title of the book, What the River Knows, it really intrigued me. The book was written by Dr. Wayne Fields. Dr. Fields is the professor of arts and sciences at St. Louis University in, at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Fields was 42 years old, and he decided he needed a reality check in his life. And so he decided that he'd go to northern Michigan and wade down 20 miles of stream and that he would fish as he meditated upon life. So the book, What the River Knows, talks about Dr. Field's reflections about health, about family, about choices that he made, about his future. And it's a fascinating book. In the book where, in the chapter he's reflecting on health, he quotes an old nursery rhyme, and the rhyme goes like this, the best six doctors anywhere and no one can deny it. Our sunshine, water, rest, and air, exercise, and diet. These six will gladly you attend. If only you are willing, your mind they'll ease, your will they'll mend, and charge you not a shilling. That's a little bit like creation health, isn't it? Those are the principles we've been talking about that have come down through the centuries from that ancient garden. Health secrets from the Garden of Eden, what are they? They have to do with our choice. Deeply embedded in that garden, God gave Adam and Eve the power of choice. They have to do with rest in our environment, the water, the fresh air. They have to do with exercise. These bodies of ours were designed for activity. They have to do with a living trust in God. and Our interpersonal relationships, if they're stress-filled, they impact our health. Our outlook on life probably contributes more to our health than anything else. And of course, good, solid nutrition. These are nature's doctors. 3 John chapter 2, the Bible says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper, and in all things be in health, just as your soul prospers. I like the way the New International Version of the Bible puts it, where John says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health, and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. God's intent is that each of us have an abundant life. 
Although our world is a world of sickness, sorrow, and suffering, and although there is some sickness that we experience that is beyond our control, either as the result of certain genetic factors or the result of the environment that we live in, we do not suggest that if you follow every law of health perfectly, you'll always be in abundant health. But what we do suggest is this. If you follow those laws of health, you'll be in a lot better health than you would have been if you didn't follow them. Doesn't that make sense, everybody? Sure. So following the laws of health that God has written on every nerve and tissue in our body produces for us both a quality of life and a quantity of life that is not available if we don't follow those laws of health. Tonight we look at activity, the law of life. Here's a trivia question for you. You ready for the trivia tonight? How many are you ready? Let's see your hands. You ready for trivia? How many people in the United States own a pair of running shoes but don't run? 10%? 20%? 50%? Okay, what's your, what's your guess? Whew. Here it is. 87% of Americans own running shoes and they do not run. If you want to feel better, be more energetic, reduce your risk of disease and live longer, plan on developing a regular exercise regime. Plato said this, Lack of activity destroys the good condition of every human being, while movement and methodical physical exercise save it and preserve it. I think Plato was right. What about you? Cicero put it this way, it's exercise alone that supports the spirits and keeps the mind in vigor. What does exercise do for you? First, exercise helps to control our weight. The more you exercise, the more that exercise helps to burn calories that reduces weight. I heard somebody say once, people say that losing weight is no walk in the park. When I hear that, I think, yeah, that's the problem. Maybe if they took more walks in the park, they'd have less weight. Exercise helps to control the weight problems that we have. Ralph Waldo Emerson puts it this way, when you've worn out your shoes, the strength of the shoe leather has passed into the fiber of your body. I measure your health by the number of shoes and hats and clothes you've worn out. That's pretty good, isn't it? Exercise also helps us to prevent disease. More and more studies indicate the health benefits of exercise. Guidelines from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention demonstrate that regular exercise reduces the risk of developing major illnesses such as heart disease, diabetes, and certain cancers. Exercise has a powerful effect on cholesterol and triglyceride levels in the blood and is viewed as a significant means to lower the risk associated with those elevated levels. So exercise plays a major part in building the immune system and reducing the risk of disease. In fact, more and more research indicates that exercise helps us to prevent high blood pressure and being active also boosts our HDL, and HDL is high-density protein, uh, and it is good cholesterol, and it decreases unhealthy triglycerides. So there's a lot that's going on, your, on in your body when you're taking that walk with head erect and shoulders back, and you're taking deep breaths that you may not recognize. There's a lot that's going on in your body when you're taking that swim. There's a lot that's going on in your body when you're riding that bike when you're out there in that morning jog. So when you get actively involved and these bodies of ours are moving, 
There are things taking place in every nerve and tissue of our bodies that we may not be fully aware of. Thirdly, exercise helps to reduce the detrimental effects of stress. A man came into a physician's office some time ago, very, very discouraged. And he said, I have to see the doctor, I have to see the doctor. Didn't have an appointment, the office was crowded. And the doctor was a very wise man. The nurse came back and said, there's somebody here that has to see you immediately. The doctor became a little concerned, but came out, and the man said, look, doc, I'm so discouraged I have to see you. The doctor said, look, you see all these people in the office, they have appointments, you don't. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I will promise you that I'll see you in an hour. It's my lunch hour, but this is what I want you to do before that. You see that park out there? I want you to go for a walk for the next hour in the park and come back and see me. The man came back and said, doc, you know what? I don't feel quite as bad anymore. <laughs> Exercise helps to reduce the detrimental effects of stress. Physical activity stimulates various brain chemicals that may leave you feeling happier and more relaxed. Exercise may actually work on a cellular level to reverse stress's toll on the aging process. Now, there are some new studies out on exercise, depression, exercise, and aging that are quite remarkable. The University of California, San Francisco researchers found that stressed out women who exercised vigorously for an average of 45 minutes over a three-day period had cells that showed fewer signs of aging compared to women who were stressed out and not active. So if you take these two groups of women, one group are stressed out and they're active, one group are stressed out and they're not active, and you look at both of them, the group that is stressed out and active has a change on the cellular level that helps to reduce, prevent aging, and reduce stress. Alyssa Eppelin, the associate professor of psychiatry at UC San Francisco, puts it this way, working out also helps us keep from negative thought patterns by altering blood flow to those areas in the brain involved in triggering us to relieve these stressful thoughts again and again. When you're not exercising, there's an area in the brain that triggers negative thoughts again and again and again. But when you get involved in active exercise, those negative thought patterns are changed in, a, uh, in the brain waves. Exercise helps to alleviate depression, the fourth value of great exercise. Exercise has been found to stimulate the growth of neurons in certain brain regions damaged during depression. You know, there are, there's what we call in neuroanatomy a synapse that occurs in the brain. The brain has about 14 billion brain cells. Actually, it has more. It's interesting. I was lecturing once on stress and stress reduction, and I had a neurophysicist in the audience, a man who spent his life. He was a PhD in the study of the brain, and so I mentioned the brain has 14 billion brain cells. And he came up to me later and he said, Mark, that is wrong. It's totally wrong. I said, well, I'm sorry, but how many does it have? He said, 100 billion brain cells. So the next lecture I mentioned, the brain has about 100 billion brain cells. There was a neurophysicist, neurophysicist in the audience. No, this is true. And he came up to me and said, that's old research. We used to think it was 100 billion. He gave me some number. I even forget what it was, now, 150 billion. So I said, hey, doc, did you count them? 150 billion, did you count them? I don't know how many billion it has, but I know this. When you exercise, okay, here's the little synapse. These are, we call these little ganglia. This little ganglia, this little ganglia. Picture them like little hair-like projections. 
These ganglia don't quite touch. And in between, there's what we call a synapse. So you have an electrical impulse that comes down this uh, brain uh, ganglia that touches, and these two things connect. If your brain is working properly, those synapses are made and those, those, that electrical impulse is made so that they connect. When you get depressed, it changes the chemical nature of the brain and your brain misfires. And it's kind of like a car that, you know, misfires. And so there's that depression. But when you exercise adequately, that exercise enables the brain to produce a chemical so those synapses don't misfire as much. And that's why, as we go back to the screen, exercise has been found to stimulate the growth of neurons in certain brain regions damaged by depression. Now, there's a lot of studies done in animals that indicate that getting active boosts the production of brain molecules that improve connections between nerve cells, thereby acting as a natural antidepressant. When you're out in the sunshine, it produces serotonin, natural antidepressant. Exercise produces natural antidepressant. So if you combine those two, exercising in the sunshine, breathing fresh air, you've got a tremendous antidote against depression. Now, I'm not suggesting if you do that, all depression will go away. There are maybe some chemical reasons. You need to consult your physician. But what I am saying is that the scientific research indicates that the more you exercise, the more you're out in the sun and the fresh air, the more you'll produce positive chemicals in the brain that'll help to reduce depression. According to an October 2209 U.S. News and World Report article, researchers at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina reported that exercise after brain radiation treatment protects against memory loss and depression. Here are people that have had a malignancy on the brain. They've had radiation treatment on the brain. If we can get them to exercise after their brain radiation, their memory loss is a lot less and their depression is going to be much less. Fifthly, exercise helps to boost our energy. If you're feeling tired, you go to bed at night and you just get up in the middle of the day and you're absolutely exhausted, not only will exercise help you sleep better, but exercise will boost your energy levels. The more you exercise, the more your energy is on the cutting edge and you boost your energy. Exercise and physical activity actually deliver oxygen and nutrients to your tissues and help your cardiovascular system work more efficiently. Often after a lecture, I'm quite exhausted as I travel the world. And many times, my wife and I stay in hotels. We usually, we like to stay in the eighth or ninth floor of the hotel. That way, we can walk up the back stairs. And uh, many a times at night after a lecture, you'll see us walking up the back stairs 15 times, 20 times, if it's not safe. Some of the areas we work in are not safe for us to walk in the evening. So we'll walk up the stairs of the hotel 15, 20 times, whatever it takes. We walk the corridors of the hotel. We go to the exercise rooms in the hotel because we know that we cannot keep our health on the hectic schedule that we live on unless we're actively involved in exercise. Some people call exercise the new fountain of youth. It was Ponce de Leon there in St. Augustine, Florida, that uh, thought he discovered the fountain of youth. But many believe that exercise is that new fountain of youth. If you want a zip in your spirit and a spring in your step, get out there, take a walk, exercise. Exercise helps to promote better sleep. If you haven't been able to sleep, get out and get some exercise and you'll find that the muscles are fatigued, the mind relaxes, and you certainly will be able to sleep a lot better if you're exercising than if you weren't exercising at all. Some of the newer studies indicate that exercise helps to improve learning. Students that exercise tend to do better in their grades than students that 
don't exercise, that sit around and the only exercise they get is the thumb exercise when they push the remote. The only exercise they get is the exercise from the couch to the a refrigerator when they get more food when they're watching commercials. You know, if you have a student that's very sedentary, a student that doesn't get much exercise, their learning ability will tend to be a lot less than if a student exercises. John Kennedy, 35th president of the United States, made an insightful remark. He said, physical fitness is not only one of the most important keys to a healthy body, it's the basis of a dynamic and creative intellectual activity. If you want to have a dynamic intellectual activity, if you want to be creative, get out and get adequate exercise. There's a new book written by John Ratney. He's an MD at Harvard Medical School, a psychiatrist and author. And Ratney both wrote the book called Spark. And he believes that exercise is the single best thing you can do for your brain in terms of mood, memory, and learning. He goes on to say, you're challenging your brain even more when you have to think about coordination. Like muscles, you have to stress your brain cells to get them to grow. So if the activity that you're participating in requires muscular coordination, it will enable your brain to expand and your memory ability to expand even more rapidly. Early in my ministry, as I traveled from place to place and I was giving lectures, I would take an hour walk before the lecture and review the lecture in my mind. And by the time I came to the platform to lecture, I would know that lecture and have memorized it. Not because I had a phenomenal memory, but because for years I disciplined myself to walk for an hour before the lecture, reviewing it in my mind. And in that way, the brain cells expand. And people often say to me, how can you remember so much? How do you have these facts in your mind? It's not because I have any special memory, but I've understood the principles of anatomy and physiology. So very often before the lecture, I'll walk and it seems that the brain just absorbs new facts as your mind grows. Try it. I suggest that when a student has a test, they study up until a certain point before the test. They fill their brain, then they take a walk, take deep breaths and absorb facts. It will make a remarkable difference. Dr. Ratney believes that even 10 minutes of daily activity changes your brain, that actually changes the cellular amount in the brain and the amount that the brain can absorb. Exercise helps to build self-esteem and improve body image. The more you exercise and the more you see yourself, your body changing. We saw that tonight, didn't we? In the testimony of Rosie and her whole attitude toward life and her self-image changed. Why? Because as she exercised, she sensed that she now was in much more control of her destiny. But I have a question for you tonight. What if you follow all these principles of creation health? You make good choices. You rest. You enjoy your environment and drink adequate water. And get adequate fresh air and sunshine. And get adequate activity and your positive attitudes. But what if... You do all that and you're exercising. But isn't exercise rather limited when you really think about it? What if you exercise and you follow the principles of creation health? And what if you live 10 years longer? That's great. What if you live 25 years longer? You're still going to die, right? You're still going to die. So we can prevent, we can postpone disease, but we cannot fully prevent it. 
We can postpone death, but we cannot fully prevent it. And so in addition to physical fitness, there's the need to be spiritually fit. The Bible talks about exercise this way. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Exercise yourself toward godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little. In other words, if you exercise your body, it profits you a little bit in the light of eternity. You may gain 10 years or 25 years, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Physical fitness maybe can give you 10 years. Maybe it can give you a better quality of life. But the Bible talks about spiritual fitness. It talks about walking in the Spirit. It talks about walking by faith. It talks about walking in the light. It talks about running the race. Let's take a journey through that ancient book called the Bible. And let's discover how the Bible uses these exercise terms to apply them to our spiritual lives and see what we can discover tonight. The Bible talks a great deal about walking in the Spirit. Now, when the Bible talks about walking, it talks about a lifestyle. In other words, living in a spiritual frame of mind. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, walk in the Spirit. In other words, live in a spiritual frame of mind. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusts against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So the Bible talks about the flesh and the spirit. What is the flesh? The flesh has to do with these bodily desires and passions of mine, these lustful desires, these selfish passions, these desires to indulge this body. So when the Bible talks about not indulging the flesh, it is talking about not being dominated by the fleshly desires of the body that are self-destructive. When it talks about walking in the spirit, it talks about living on a different level, a spiritual level, whereby the divine power of God through the Holy Spirit comes into your life and gives you power to carry out your choices. We may make choices, but we don't have the power to carry out those choices. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25 says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So the Christian life is not gritting your teeth, clenching your fists, and saying, I am going to do these health principles if they kill me. And if that's your attitude, they probably will. But the Christian life is one of joy and incredible gladness in which we recognize that there are certain passions that are involved in a fallen human nature. There are certain desires that are not in harmony with the will of God. What is Christianity? We come to Jesus and we say, Lord, I want to give you permission to enter into my life. And I want you to come in with your strength and power and make me the person you want me to be. I do not abdicate my power of choice but I choose to allow him to give direction to my life, and I choose to follow the principles that he's outlined in the Eden life, and that enables me to live life in the more abundant way. When I surrender my freedom to him, he gives it back to me refined and ennobled 
so that I can live the abundant life that he desires. I was holding meetings in one province in Mexico, and I met Mr. Jorge and his son, Jose. Mr. Jorge was a man that had one basic problem in life. He couldn't control his temper. When he drank, it even made his temper worse. Drinking was a problem, but his temper was totally out of control. His young son, Jose, learned to hate his father. Jose's father was an angry, cruel man. And Jose said he often sat on the steps of their apartment, listening to his father come home half drunk in a rage of anger, beating his mother. And Jose said, I came to the point in my life where I absolutely hated my father because I heard my mother crying. I heard the slaps across the face and I heard the screams. And she sa he said, I absolutely hated my father. This young boy decided that what he would do was kill his father. And so he decided the only way to stop this cruelty was to kill his father. And so he got a butcher knife from the kitchen. And one day his father was watching television. He came up behind his father with the butcher knife. And his father heard the boy coming, didn't know he had the butcher knife, turned around and saw the son, held his hand, wrestled the knife out of his, father's, his son's hand and beat his son. The family was going from bad to worse in a major crisis. Fortunately, they had a Christian neighbor. And that Christian neighbor sensed that something was wrong, seriously, tragically wrong in this family. And that neighbor began to visit them. It wasn't an easy task. First, the neighbor began talking to the woman and told her that she may need to get out of that environment for a while. Her leaving that environment brought her husband to his serious senses. She knew that she had to get out of the environment to protect her child. They began a series of counseling sessions with a Christian counselor, and they were led to study God's Word. Over a period of weeks and months, the horror of their past seemed now not to be dominating their lives. A new peace settled over this troubled home. This mother and son began to sense a strength and a peace. The father was jarred to his senses. Now, not every story ends this way, but that family began to discover what it was like to have the supernatural power of God change their lives. And I remember lecturing in Mexico, and mother and son decided to come to the meetings, and the father said, if you have been changed by the Spirit of God and the power of the living Christ, I want to explore that. I need help too. And so he came to our meetings, and we watched God reunite that family. We watched God make a, work a miracle in their lives as this family attended our meetings nightly. They sensed the power of God working in their lives. They sensed what it was like to walk in the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and invite the Holy Spirit to come into your life to enable you to empower your choices to make a change. We cannot make the changes in our life ourselves. Walking in the Spirit means that we are living in another dimension. We're living in a spiritual dimension. 
Jose, Mr. Horde, and this whole family had a joy and a peace as they allowed Jesus Christ through His Spirit to transform their lives. The Bible talks about walking in the Spirit. It talks also about walking by faith. Walking by faith. Let's read it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, reading together. For we walk by what? Faith and not by sight. What is that talking about walking by faith and not by sight? Walking, to walk by faith is to trust God in all circumstances of life. It's to believe that He loves me and desires only my best good. Even in life's most challenging times and darkest hours, it does not give up because it has the confidence that He's there. So faith doesn't mean that everything in my life is always going to go well. Faith does not Faith is not some good luck charm. Faith is not some four-leaf clover. Faith is not, oh, I want to go on a picnic and I prayed it wouldn't rain, so I believe. That is not faith. I'm not offering you tonight, and the Bible doesn't offer you some candy cotton faith that's sweet in your mouth but leaves you barren. What is faith? Faith is trusting God as a friend well-known knowing that He loves me, and knowing whatever happens in my life, whatever heartache or sorrow I experience, that He'll never leave me or never forsake me. It doesn't say things will always go well, but it says He'll always be there. Faith is trusting in that loving God. You know, when I was a boy, I was brought up in Norwich, Connecticut, and my grandfather lived at an apartment in, called Nine Raymond Place. And there in the apartment, my aunt and uncle lived on the first floor. Grandpa lived on the second floor. And then on the third floor, for a time, Grandpa raised canaries. And I remember as a boy, my grandfather taking me up where he's raising these canaries. And one day, he took a sheet and he put it over the canary's cage. And he took one male canary and he put it in that cage. And they began going like this. <laughs> You didn't know I could train canaries, did you? <laughs> I said, Grandpa, what are you doing? He said, I cover the cage in darkness so the canary can only hear my whistle. And as I whistle to the canary, I teach it to sing. And pretty soon the canary began going back. Sometimes in our lives, the cage of life that we're in seems to be covered with darkness. But by faith, we listen to God's voice. And in the loneliness of that darkness, when life seems to be falling apart, God is teaching us deeper lessons of faith. He's teaching us how to sing the song of faith and trust in the dark. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to live in the spiritual realm, to allow God through His Spirit to change your life and to empower you. What does it mean to walk by faith? It means to trust God and allow Him to shape your life and to depend on Him in any circumstance of life. The Bible also talks about walking in the light. Not only is physical fitness important, spiritual fitness is important. What does the Bible mean when it talks about walking in the light? John 12, verse 35, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I'm the light of the world. Very often, 
the devil wants to enshroud us in darkness. We're in a world of good and evil, a world where, where there is a conflict between good and evil. Darkness enshrouds us, the darkness of discouragement, the darkness of depression, the darkness that says you can't make a change, the darkness that says you don't have any future, the darkness that says you're not worth very much at all, the darkness that says that there is no possibility for you and your state to be saved in God's kingdom. See, the devil will do anything he can to discourage you with darkness. Jesus says, walk in the light. Do not be a child of darkness. Do not live in that cave of unbelief. Do not live in that cave of doubt. When the devil suggests negative thoughts to you and says you're not worth much, when the devil says you're going to lose your job, when the devil says you have no future, when the devil says you're not going to get into that school, when the devil enshrouds you with negative thoughts of darkness, Jesus says, walk in the light. He says, I have a plan for you. When you're diagnosed with cancer and the devil says to you, you're going to die, you say, look, I don't know if I'm going to die or I'm going to live, but I know this. I'm going to walk in the light of God's love and I'm going to love him and I know he's going to give me joy in my life no matter what goes on in my life. When you lose a job and the devil says, you're not going to get another job and you're going to lose your house, you say, I'm not going to live in that darkness. I'm not going to live in that level. I'm not going to live in a cave. I'm not going to live in a dungeon. I choose to believe God is my best and I best for me. And I don't know what's going to happen in my future, but I know God is going to work something out good for me because God cares for me and God loves me. I am not going to live in the cave of darkness. I'm going to walk in the light. I'm not going to listen to the devil's lies. I love to travel and spend many, many hours traveling the world, lead tours around the world to various religious sites and often enjoy going to Rome. One thing in Rome that is often missed when you go there is this image, it's called the man of truth, the man of truth. And there's different legends about this man of truth. We don't know actually where the, uh, where the um, stone carving came from. Some uh, experts and archaeologists believe it was the cover of a well. But what draws you to the man of truth is as you look at him, obviously, and you can see it in the picture, he's an old man, deep furrows on his head, he has his long hair, the eyes, the nose, but Really what draws you to this man of truth is the mouth. There are different theories about him. One theory is that if you put your hand in his mouth and you're a liar, he'll bite off your hand. <laughs> Most people aren't trying it anymore. You know what one's theory was though? That this was placed in a church and you put your hand in his mouth and the priest would be on the other end and he'd really whack your hand pretty hard, not chop it off. And so it was just, there's a lot of interesting theories about it. One is this, that the mouth of truth speaks to every person in their life at some time. And throughout your life, there are going to be different moments when the man of truth speaks. And he is going to speak truth to you when he speaks it to you do not continue to walk in darkness. I like that thought. Throughout our life, there are decision times. Throughout our life, there are key moments. There are moments when truth is spoken to us. Maybe there's some truth spoken to you in this series about a change in your exercise habits. Maybe there's some truth about a change in your diet. Maybe there's some truth about a change in your attitude. Maybe there's some truth that God, Christ wants to live in your heart and transform you by the Holy Spirit. Maybe God brought you to these meetings miraculously so His truth can be spoken to your heart. What does it mean to walk in the light? It means to come out of the cave of darkness. 
It means to stop deceiving ourselves. It means to listen to the truth that God has given to us in creation and to go back to making those positive, life-changing choices that are so life-transforming. But the Bible goes beyond walking by faith. It goes beyond walking by the Spirit. It goes beyond walking in the light. The Bible talks, too, about running. Let's read it together. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I have many young people coming to me saying to me, Pastor, I don't know if I can ever be saved in God's kingdom. You would, not, you would be very surprised at the people I talk to after meetings saying, you know, I'm just not good enough, filled with discouragement. I point them to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. How many of you tonight know that Jesus has done something in your life? Did, did, has Jesus ever done one thing in your life? How many of you know that? Look, I want to tell you something. If he's the author of your faith, he's going to be the finisher of your faith. For many years, I was the speaker of It Is Written Television for 13 years. George Vandeman was the founder of that TV program, and Pastor Vandeman had been on the air for many, many years, and he had a saying like this. He always would say, when I look at myself, I see no possibility to be saved in God's kingdom. But when I look at Jesus, I see no possibility of being lost. When I look at myself, I'm pretty weak. You know, the Christian life is more, than a, more like a marathon than a sprint. Has, is, has anybody here ever run a marathon? I've never run a marathon, but has anybody here ever run a marathon? I don't see any hands. Oh, yeah, a few. Yeah, okay, now I'm more encouraged. Now, I'm not suggesting you run a marathon tonight. But marathon runners say this, that as they're running the marathon that there are times in that race of running the marathon that they want to give up. There are times that their hamstrings are burning. They can't take another step. There are times that they call it hitting the wall. They're running this marathon and they're saying, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. The Christian life is like that sometimes. It's like running this marathon and you, you've been running it maybe for five years or 10 years and there's some curve that comes to your life or some mountain you're climbing or some obstacle that you're going through and you just get overwhelmed and you say, I can't make it any longer. Read it together with me. Looking unto Jesus, the what? Author and finisher of our faith. If we look to Jesus, the one that began a good work in us, we'll do what? Finish it. Now, there are certain essential disciplines in the Christian life, Bible study, fellowship, communion with other believers in worship and prayer. They equip us to run the race with vigor and stamina. The more our minds are saturated with the truth of God's Word, the more the devil's lies do not impact us and engulf us in darkness. The more we fellowship and have communion with God's people in worship, the more our spirits are invigorated, the more we participate in prayer, the more we live in the reality of God's truth. I love Philippians 1 verse 6. Let's read it together. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that tonight? Has God begun something in you? Has he? Is he going to finish what he began? I thank him for that. Derek Redmond was the hope of England. Barcelona Olympics, 1992. Derek was running the 440 race 
He had won the first heat in the race. He had won the quarterfinals, and now all eyes were upon him as he crouched at the starting line in the semifinals of the 440. He was leading as they rounded the first curve, and then Derek Redman ripped out his hamstring. He fell on the track. His hopes and dreams were gone. He watched as the, the backs of the other runners, as they kicked up dirt with their spikes, as he lay there, pounding the earth. He had trained for years for this moment. He had spent countless hours preparing himself. And now he was lying on the track with pain burning in his hamstring. He could not get up. He couldn't finish the race. But finally, he determined lying there, I'm getting up. He got up and with one leg began to hop toward the finish line. His father was in the crowd. And Derek's father leaped out of the stands, barged past the security, pushed them aside, placed his arms around his son. And his, he said, son, you don't have to do this. And Derek said, dad, I do. And the father said, then son, we'll do it together. And Derek Redmond's dad carried him as he hopped on one leg to the finish line. 60,000 people in the Barcelona Stadium stood. And they gave him a standing ovation. They cheered with thundering applause. Have you ever felt in your life that running the race of the Christian life toward heaven, you have fallen on the track and everybody else has passed you by? Have you ever fit, laid there crying and saying, oh God, my life is a mess? Jesus sees and Jesus knows. And he leaps out of the stands and he comes to where you are and he carries you to the finish line. When we're struggling in the race of life and others seem to have passed us by, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, leaps into the arena of our lives and he carries us. That is incredible good news. But you know something about races? All races do what? Come to an end. Record-setting achievements gained at so great a price are a vague recollection in the distant past. All races come to an end. When the race is over, when we cross that final finish line, only one thing will really matter. Have we made a total commitment to Jesus Christ? When we reach for the eternal crown, we're reaching for a crown that will never fade away. In the Apostles Paul's day, every two years in Greece, there was something known as the Ismanian Games. They were part of the Greek Olympiad. They were held in honor of the Greek god Poseidon. The victor's prize was a perishable crown. Under the Greeks, the crown was made of woven laurel leaves. Later, it was a crown of wild celery, but after Corinth was conquered by the Romans under Julius Caesar, the games were reestablished for a time with a crown of fur as the victor's prize. But all these crowns were perishable. All these crowns of victory for winning the games were very fragile, and they quickly began to fade. These athletes wanted to be the best. They wanted to be the fastest. They wanted to be the strongest. 
They wanted to be the most agile people in the world, and they wanted that crown upon their heads at the end of the day. They did everything they could, everything possible, to achieve victory so they could have that crown. The crown was awarded to them as a symbol of the fleeting moment of victory and the fleeting moment of popularity that they were to enjoy. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.25, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. They do it to obtain the perishable crown. This wreath, this laurel wreath that will fade away. But we do it for an imperishable crown. The crowns of our society, the crowns of a good job, the crowns of a higher education level, the crowns of a better lifestyle, the crowns of more wealth and possessions, the crown of fame and fortune, the crown of power and praise of men are nothing more than perishable crowns that fade quickly and forgotten by all. The Bible says in James 2, verse 13 and 14, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will do this and that. Come. You say you'll spend a year here or spend a year in that city, but we'll buy and sell, we'll make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. In Milan, there's a great cathedral. And that cathedral in Italy has three doors. And on the left door, it says, all that vexes you is but for a moment. On the right door, it says, all that pleases you is but for a moment. And in the central door of that great cathedral, it says, that which endures is eternal. The most important choices we make in our lives are the choices that will last for eternity. The choices that will last forever. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me what? Not a perishable crown, but a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day and not to me only, but all those that love is appearing. The crown of righteousness is an eternal symbol of the happiness of the saints. God has a world for you prepared beyond your comprehension, a world of joy and health and gladness, a world of intellectual pursuits and learning and discovery. It is eternal life, life abundant, life without end, life at its fullest measure. Which crown are you chasing today? Which reward are you seeking today? Would you like to say today, Jesus, I want to walk in the Spirit. I want the Spirit to transform my life. I want to walk in faith. Whatever happens in my life, I want to trust you. I want to walk in the light. I don't want to live in the cave of unbelief, in the dungeon of darkness. Lord, I want to run the race. I don't want to be on the treadmill of this earth, living my life to be more popular, to make more money, to achieve more, or to get more. Because that rat race in treadmill will only destroy your health physically, mentally, and spiritually. 
Would you like to say tonight, oh Jesus, mold me, shape me, make me more like you. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.